and welcome to episode 2073 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rowley of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. We are recording during ALCS Game 2 in the closing moments, maybe, perhaps. So maybe, maybe we can start elsewhere and perhaps we will have a final by the end of this intro. We shall see. But there has been some big off-the-field baseball news that was reported yeah. on Monday. So that might be a place where we could start. Kim Ang, no longer the Marlins GM. Yeah, She is out. It was, well, it sounds like it was a contentious situation. There have been a couple yeah. of pieces that have come out. Brittany Giroli wrote about it for The Athletic. Jeff Passan wrote about it for ESPN. And essentially her deal was up, so she was not fired. And in fact, the Marlins exercised their end of a mutual option, and she did not, though it sounds like she had every reason not to, (laughs) based on some of this reporting. So the way that Brittany Giroli characterized it was that this came as a result of numerous instances in which Aang felt like she was being stripped of her power and underappreciated. And one of those instances, one piece of evidence there, was that the organization didn't offer her a new three-year deal following the conclusion of her initial three-year deal and the Marlins making the playoffs in 2023. So often when that happens, you will get sort of a re-up, the same deal that you had before. I think Buster only reported that they offered her some sort of extension, but I guess it wasn't for the same length. I don't know what the details or the terms were. So that was one thing. Another thing is that she was, to quote this athletic piece, having trouble getting rid of some of Miami's holdovers from previous regimes. And then the big thing is that apparently they wanted to put a pobo over her. They wanted to hire a pobo. Yeah. Are we going to make pobo happen? Can I, I like pobo. I, <laughs> I like saying pobo. So I'm going to say pobo. Pobo sounds like um, a value meal at Burger King to me. Like, I don't know why. Like, get your pobo. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. What sure. about it feels like that? It has sort of that ring to sort it. Sort of fun. Um, yeah. I like, yeah. I like saying it. I like seeing it. So, yeah, I'm going to go with pobo. But but that that is an affront an insult, right, yeah. to to want to hire a pobo over someone who's been there for three years now, yeah. you know? Because, like, often, okay, so there's this title inflation that's going on in front offices where GM used to be the top, and now GM is often the second in command, and you have a pobo, a president of baseball operations, or sometimes they're known as something else, a chief baseball officer, whatever it is. Right. And usually I would say... The Pobo was promoted from within, was the GM and was elevated to Pobo. Right. Because often what happens is a team will come sniffing around some successful executive and will say, hey, can we interview that person? And the team will say no, because uh, often I guess it's, you know, the agreement among MLB teams is that generally they will give permission to have their executives, their personnel interviewed by another team if it is for not a lateral move, but a promotion. And so what happens is that you just kind of keep giving people promotions so that they don't get poached or so they're happy where they are. So 
if you're the pobo, you can't go any higher than that currently, although I guess it's only a matter of time until yeah. we have like the yeah. super pobo, something above the <laughs> super, pobo. Super pobo. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> so usually it's, okay, someone wants to hire our GM, we'll promote them to pobo, and then they can't get poached by some other team and they'll be happy here for a while. Occasionally, I guess it might be something else, like Billy Epler with the Mets. Now, he recently resigned, right? seemingly as a result of this MLB probe into yeah. improper use of the IL. But yeah. prior to that, it seemed like he was going to stay on under David Stearns. Now, he had been with the Mets for two years. And right. I, as I recall, Steve Cohen was pretty clear from the get-go that yes. he was intending to hire a popo at some point. <laughs> and so Epler presumably <laughs> knew this when he took the job. Right. Plus the Mets are coming off a spectacularly unsuccessful season. So maybe that right. kind of reduces your leverage a little. And none of that was true for Kim Eng, who was coming off – by Marlins standards, a successful season, had been there yep. for three years, was the entrenched leader of that regime. So even putting aside the optics of installing someone, presumably a guy, above the first female GM in the sport after she's been there and has at least had some measure of success for the yep. first few years – if you were in Kim Ang's position, if I were in King Ang's position, and they said, yeah, we're, I mean, it's in effect a demotion, right? Yep. It's it's hiring someone to be your boss when you were the boss. Yep. I probably would want to look for greener pastures, too. Yeah. You know, I'm sure we will, we will have and hear more reporting in the coming days, which I don't say to uh, knock the reporting we've already gotten, but you know, these things tend to trickle out over time mm -hmm. where we might get more clarity into. I know that Britt referenced, you know, the sort of enthusiasm that Bruce Sherman has for analytics, which sort of set it up as if Kim doesn't. Um, right. So, like, maybe there are particular dynamics within that front office that we will hear about. I know that Britt has previously reported on sort of the positive reception that. Kim has gotten um, in terms of helping to mold a positive culture within the Marlins organization. You know, I don't think that her tenure with them was perfect. I think that as an organization, they tended to overpay and trade a little bit while she was there. But I think that has as much to do with the fact that they had an incredibly limited budget and they were trying to make the postseason and like, what else are you going to do but overpay and trade if you're, you know, kind of up against it? And that's your main mechanism of outside talent acquisition. So mm -hmm. when we look at her tenure, I think like she helped to stabilize that organization. She got them back to the postseason that, you know, maybe I think you know, she paid a little too much for Robertson at the trade deadline is like hardly um, mm -hmm. cause for demotion. So I find this to be pretty disappointing. I have to you know, I don't know her, and so I don't want to speak to how something like this would wash over a person, like, emotionally. I imagine it would be very hard to walk away from a job that yeah. she has wanted seemingly for a very long time, just given how much she has interviewed for GM positions over the years. Mm -hmm. I think knowing your worth and asserting it is both incredibly valuable and incredibly difficult, particularly when you want something really bad. And so I 
imagine that this was a hard uh, call for her. But yeah, like it, it just doesn't, it doesn't seem like it's within sort of standard operating procedure within the industry to, at least based on what we know of her performance that we can observe and what we have heard behind the scenes, particularly I think in the last year after she had like gotten her feet under her and was, you know, kind of able to mold the team and direct it the way she wanted to, for ownership to put her in this position and sort of deviate from industry practice the way that they seem to have um, is really disappointing. You know, like I, I think that it would be hard to claim that the organization isn't better off now than they were a year ago. And I, <laughs> you know, this isn't unprecedented in the sort of back and forth between senior leadership in that baseball ops group and this ownership mm-hmm. group, right? Like this is, this isn't quite what happened with Jeter, but like there, it's not as if this is the first time that Sherman has sort of disagreed with the head person in charge and, and there seems to have emerged an untenable position. So mm-hmm. uh, it's a bummer. I don't know. I just look forward to a, a time in the game where like, departures like this don't feel as remarkable as they do as important as they do like for us to go back to zero in terms of the number of women in gm positions feels pretty crummy i I hope that in the future that won't be true and it'll be you know like i i don't want to quite use this analogy i want to acknowledge the limitations of this analogy because i think that kim was good at her job and so i don't want to suggest that she was bad but it was like you know when people didn't like the the female fronted ghostbusters you know and like (laughs) Mm -hmm. I think I I didn't think it was very good. You know, it wasn't for me. Mm -hmm. I just like I didn't think it was very good, but it like had to mean something that that movie like didn't resonate with people because it was it was women and they were Ghostbusters, Ben. (laughs) And it's like, you know, I I dream of a place, a a time and a place in the game where it's like, you know, people are going to come and go. Sometimes a GM isn't going to mesh well with an owner. Sometimes an owner's going to be freaking weird and seemingly unable to get along with his GM. And like that'll be interesting because of what it means for the team and what it suggests about the owner rather than it having this like broader import where like I said, we're back to to zero now. And that doesn't mean that Kimang is done in baseball. Like I imagine if she wants another act, she'll be able to get one. But Mm -hmm. for us to be in this moment where it's like, oh, well, it's just a bunch of bunch of dudes again is you know like that sucks yeah i guess she might not be out of a position like that for, for long well. there are yeah. some openings out there people have said hey it seems like a lot of people are turning down the offer to interview for that red Sox job well i guess that's open but yeah but to that end it's like boston is another place where Ownership has sort of cycled through folks in that senior spot. So it's like, mm-hmm. is that a particularly stable position? And then, like, what are you signing up for? Like, you, if you're her, like, you just did part of a rebuild. Are you really? And, you know, a lot of the a lot of the open GM positions are going to come with teams that have rebuilds. So, like, if she wants another job, maybe that's just, like, part and parcel with it. But, like, it's not ideal, right? The fact that a lot of people have passed is, like, well, is this really what we can right. do? And then it's, like, she could potentially go to New York, but mm-hmm. then they have a pobo. There's a pobo. <laughs> yes, exactly. You know, pobo. <laughs> yeah. I really am enjoying saying pobo. I think I part of too. it is I'm that there's you. a... A receiver on the Seahawks now 
whose last name is Bobo. And oh, boy, you just want that fun. guy to get the ball every time. I mean, not every time, because like, candidly, Ben, they have better receivers than him, but he's like <laughs> not bad. And, you know, it's so fun to say Bobo. So anyway, I don't know. I'm trying to keep it light because I am I am pretty bummed that this yeah. is the direction that I want. It's like of all the of all the times you really want to deviate from like what the industry typically does. Like, this is the time. Like, get it together, dude. I don't know. It's like my expectation is not. And again, I want to I want to be sure that I'm prefacing what I'm about to say by saying I'm not trying to suggest that she did a bad job. But like, it's not like if you hire a member of a historically underrepresented demographic, pick one. It doesn't just have to be a woman. It doesn't have to be an Asian American woman. But like, you know. The expectation is not that you get to hold that job in perpetuity just to satisfy the very reasonable desire to see greater diversity in the executive ranks. But, mm-hmm. like, when that person is meeting and – at the very least meeting expectations and is taking your club that, like, doesn't go to the postseason very often to the postseason – it's like you didn't have some sense of the like weight of the decision you made when you hired her. Like, you, right, come on, yeah. dude. I, I mean, I guess the the devil's advocate position would be, yeah, they made it back to the playoffs, but they were just about the worst playoff team ever. Sure. <laughs> right. Sure. I mean, totally. You know, they were outscored by fifty seven runs, uh, which was the worst run differential ever for a playoff team. They totally. went thirty three and fourteen in one run games. So if they had played up to their Pythagorean record or whatever, it would have been some progress from her first two years of 60-something wins, and obviously she didn't inherit a great team. Sure. And, of course, Bruce Sherman not spending a ton, still not spending a ton. And that was reportedly why Jeter left. Who knows what was going on there, but supposedly he got frustrated. That was at least part of it, right? Yeah, right. So, And that continues to be the case. So... It's not like the Marlins are necessarily, like, set up to be a powerhouse or something. Like, I would give her an incomplete, you know, grade. Because I'd give probably most GMs an incomplete after three years. I mean, a lot of of GMs will be like, you know, they love having a five-year plan or a seven-year plan. Gives them great job security. But there is some truth to it that it takes a while to turn around an organization, especially one like the Marlins, and especially if there's not a huge payroll. So I don't think you can necessarily look and say, oh, yeah, the foundation is is there, and whoever succeeds Kim Ang here is just going to reap the rewards. That's one possible outcome. But, you know, you look at, like, their farm system, I think, is, like, 26th right now, according to Fangraphs. Right. And again, they just sort of squeaked into the playoffs. Alcantara just had Tommy John surgery, right? Like they're yeah. they're not, uh, you know, totally set up. So sure. I, I don't know that I would look at this and say like, yes, you know, it's such a success that how could you even contemplate making a change? But sure. I don't think it would be any, like, urgency to make a change or, like, you know, it's hard to say from afar. Obviously, we don't know what's going on. But based on just the results purely, I wouldn't say clearly, like, this is going south or this is a disaster. Like, we need to hire someone else. I'd say let's give it a little more time. Like, there have been some very successful moves. I think a lot of the free agent signings under her tenure have not gone so great. Yep. I think those deadline additions, Josh Bell at least, Jake Berger, those yeah. went very well. 
yep. and help propel the Marlins into the playoffs. So at the time those moves were made, I think the consensus is, well, they gave up a lot to get those guys, yeah. but they yep. had the intended effect, right? So so it's kind of a mixed bag. I, I guess the Jorge Soler edition worked out really well. You, you yep. can find bright spots there, Arise, and obviously. You know. Yeah, I mean, Arise worked out, but Pablo Lopez was also really excellent. Yeah, I, I, I guess like you it. could I guess you could say the Marlins maybe needed a rise even more than they needed Lopez potentially, but yeah, it's I don't know. It's it's not like the the, the greatest three years <laughs> I've ever no. seen a GM start with, but also you know, if you make the playoffs and you're the Marlins and you haven't made the playoffs in any full season in 20 years at that point, and at least some things seem to be heading in the right direction, yeah. I could see why you might want to sign up for a couple more years, a few more years, and not just sort of a lame duck season. Can I interrupt with breaking news? Game over. Game over. The Houston Astros are now down 0-2 in the series, yes. Uh, yes, despite Jordan Alvarez hitting... Several baseballs mm -hmm. through another state, like just to yep. a whole different state. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think you're right. Like it's not an unqualified like, wow, they went to the World Series. And did you know that they have the best farm system in baseball? And like right. every, you know, like uh, totally, completely true, you know. But I think that your way of grading it as sort of an incomplete is probably the way that you know, most owners would view a GM in this moment. Like, they would look mm -hmm. at it and say, yeah, like, I mean, I don't know how self-aware owners tend to be, so I'm sure that most of them would not say, look, I've given you very little to work with, um, and <laughs> yeah. we managed to go to the postseason even though <laughs> yeah. this roster has obvious flaws. Like, You've done great, given what a cheapskate I am. Yeah, wow, given <laughs> just like, man, I am so miserly. I am hiding my gold. I am putting... I'm sabotaging you at every turn, right, and, and like, you've managed to make us somewhat respectable. <laughs> well right. done. I'm sure, I'm sure that that is not the way that most owners think of themselves, but uh, you know, they might say, hey... Given the resources of this team, which they would put out or remove from themselves in a way that is completely wild, <laughs> you know, we've we've managed to to do some stuff here, and I, you know, want to see where we can go with it. Um, I mean, clearly they didn't think that she had done a bad enough job to fire her, so. You know, like, and and maybe there's some strategy there. Maybe he was keen to move on and he knew that she would say, I'm not working for a POBO. Mm -hmm. It's a dumb acronym. Sounds like a value meal. And <laughs> so I'm out of here. And he did that knowing that um, he made the decision he did knowing that, you know, she would kind of give him an out. But mm -hmm. I find it disappointing nonetheless. So, mm -hmm. you know, that's where uh, that's where we're at. Yeah. In other news, possibly better news for women in baseball. Alyssa Nacken interviewed yeah. for the Giants manager job, which yeah. doesn't guarantee anything. They've no. interviewed multiple internal candidates, but yeah. and also she Stephen is, Vogt. right? Yeah, Stephen Vogt, the legend. But mm -hmm. Nacken is, I, I think, the first woman known to officially interview yes. for for that I job. That's right. So that's something. Yep. Again, I just look I just look forward to a day when it is unremarkable, you know, mm -hmm. and we're not there yet. So it is it is remarkable. It is worth remarking upon. But 
it will be very cool when we're not counting in single digits, you know, Um, because and this is a this is a broader statement, not about either of these two women in particular. But like the fact of the matter is that like sometimes managers don't work out. Sometimes GMs don't work out. Sometimes people you think are going to be really great end up being, you know, mediocre or lousy or a bad fit. They can't inspire people. They can't lead. They can't build the infrastructure. They need whatever. Right. Like. Mm -hmm. People are going to fail because being a GM, being a POBO, <laughs> POBO, being a manager is incredibly hard. Like, it is hard work. It is dependent on the hard work and performance of a lot of other people who aren't you. And you have to, you both get to and have to bear the responsibility of their performance. And sometimes, you know, people come in and they don't do what's necessary to advance a team's objectives and they get fired. And And, Mm -hmm. you know, to take it back to the Lady Ghostbusters, like, what a world it will be when a female-fronted film can just fail and we won't remark (laughs) upon it, you know? Mm -hmm. What a world it'll be when the first woman to, you know, be the general manager of an organization gets to stand there with her team and the commissioner and lift a world series trophy it'll be really cool but the the one that'll be really really cool will be like the 20th one where we're not writing the story about how she's the first ex she's Mm -hmm. the first you know like and i don't say that to diminish the magnitude of the steps that we're taking because they're critical to getting to that point and the work that a lot of different kinds of folks do around the game is like really cool and is instrumental to the teams that we like winning baseball games. But I just, I look forward to not being so notable. It's like when I, I, it's like I, I've taken to kind of telling conference organizers when they ask, like, I'm like, I don't, I don't want to do the women in baseball panel anymore. Like I appreciate the necessity (laughs) of this. I understand why particularly for, for women and non-binary folks who are trying to get into the game, having someone who isn't a dude talk about the experience of being in the industry is valuable. Although, you know, in terms of team stuff, like what, what the hell do I know about that? But, (laughs) you know, it's like, I don't want to do that anymore. Just let me talk about baseball. I'm tired of doing the, you know, they're Mm -hmm. important and I get it. And there should be a networking session, but like the best way to showcase this, to showcase any demo that hasn't been up there before is just to put them on the stage and let them talk about ball. So yeah. There you go. Yeah. There does seem something especially demoralizing about the like hiring someone above her in that team. It's one yeah. thing to, you know, if she yeah, had been very unsuccessful and we say, well, you're making a change. I mean, okay, it's a competitive industry and there are only, well, I was going to say there are only 30 of these jobs, except who knows how many there how are many really there are. now. There are so <laughs> because many. there could be more, there could be fewer depending on right. the title. But but yeah, like, you know, if, if things go south, okay, that's the way that these things go. But right. to wait in line for decades and decades and to yeah. have assistant GM jobs and work for the league and all the rest and to be overqualified for a first GM job and right. then to do an okay job at least and right. then have them say like, it's like, you know, you break the glass ceiling or something and then it's like, oh, there's another ceiling even higher up there suddenly that we just installed above your head somehow, <laughs> right. even though you were doing right. just fine seemingly. Yeah. So yeah, there's something about that that's just like yeah. extra insulting yeah. or, or, you know, it's just, yeah. So yeah. we'll see. It definitely rankles in a different way. And like I said, like we, you know, when, when these kinds of moves get made, 
regardless of the gender of the person, um, you know, there's always there's always more that ends up coming out as, you know, time goes on and, you know, as they get into the search, we might hear more. So like, who knows? We might hear more here, but, um, on, on first blush, it's, it's not the best, not, not super stoked on it, Ben. So. Yeah. She, she put it very diplomatically to Tyler Kepner. She said, uh, in her discussions with Bruce Sherman about the baseball operations department, it became apparent that we were not completely aligned on what that should look like. And I felt it best to step away. So yeah, yeah, there's a lot of (laughs) subtext there probably, but yes. (laughs) She's a pro. So, Mm -hmm. and you know, I I would imagine that if you are, (laughs) sounded like Bob Martinez there for a second. Um, Kevin Kiermaier. I (laughs) would imagine that particularly if you have aspirations to work for another team or perhaps return to the league office, like, you know, you want to, you want to put yourself in a position where you don't say anything that gives people an excuse to limit your opportunities. And that wouldn't be fair, but it is, I think, a reality that like people in those roles have to navigate where even mm-hmm. if you behind even if you're in the group text with your friends <laughs> saying, This is I'm gonna do a swear, this is horseshit. And I don't I don't know if she swears. I don't again, I don't know her, but you put forward a professional stoic face and uh and live to fight another day Mm because the only people who get to pop off are owners apparently (laughs) yeah well the astros live to fight another day but they are down two games to none so we we're recording just before the start of nlcs game one so we have no nlcs updates for you but we do have some alcs updates and it's that things are not going great for houston they're going great for texas but not houston specifically (laughs) so we did a patreon live stream during game one and uh, a few of our listeners know our thoughts and and experience that in real time with us it was a two hour and 49 minute game that felt faster it It just seemed to be zipping along yeah it It was was a great game yeah, two nothing in the end, and again a continuation of the low offense postseason, and especially the losing team, sometimes barely getting on the board or not at all. And it was just another Jordan Montgomery game. You have to yeah. specify now when you say the Montgomery game, you got to specify which of his huge starts for the Rangers you're right. talking about. Yeah. And Justin Verlander was decent. He was economical. He was getting through those early innings without any whiffs or any Ks. He got a few strikeouts and whiffs at the very end of his outing, but he was, you know, getting away with a few and just getting by with not his best stuff, but good enough to win, as they say, except that to win when the pitcher allows two runs, you got to score at least three. And the Astros uh, did not score any as it no, happens. So this was just another example of Montgomery being great and also the Rangers bullpen in that game being better than advertised, which is not saying that much because they were advertised as a really terrible bullpen, but they did their job. They did not allow any runs. And then in game two, it was even closer. Not a two-run game, but a one-run game. And this time, the Rangers held on. And again, and, and you know, it was uh, surprising to see Jordan strike out, what, three times, right, in the Montgomery yeah. game. And then we found out before game two that he was under the weather. 
that yeah. he had some sort of virus, upset stomach, headache. And so we were initially planning to record before that game. And so I was going to say something about Jordan's flu game. I swear yeah. I was. I'm sure many people probably said that. And yeah, he had his flu game. He hit two home runs. <laughs> but but that was not quite enough. Just not quite enough. Not quite enough. Nathan Navaldi was good. Yeah, I guess he's just he's just back to full strength again, I guess. Yep. He was just, yep. <laughs> I don't know, he was just sandbagging in September. He just uh, made us think he was uh, bad and hurt and, and then suddenly flipped the switch. Playoff, Navaldi is back and he's great again. He is great again. Um, the Rangers were incredibly aggressive against Framber Valdez in the first inning of, of the game. You know, they really put it to him. They were uh, swinging and singling on first pitches. And I was just like, you know, last night on the live stream, I was like, you know who's really aggressive on first pitch? Marcus Simeon and Corey Seager. And they were like, Meg, you're a brain genius because <laughs> they took, you know, first pitch, singled back to back, and then. You know, they put pressure on those guys. They came out of the first inning up 4-0, and the Astros tried to, but they couldn't. They couldn't do it, even though we we started to get a glimpse of the the Rangers' bullpen meltdown. Chapman is just, I, oh, man. <laughs> I, uh, if I, look, I know that there aren't a lot of great options out there, and that yeah. Bochi has to navigate not only the remainder of this series, but what he hopes will be a World Series after but like, what what kind of leverage situation are you comfortable putting Chapman in Ugh, at this point? Like none, no, none, terrifying. zero. Like yeah. he's not. I don't know if he's unplayable, but it's it's pretty. You know, it's not good, Ben. Mm-hmm. It's pretty bad. Yeah. So and you know, you don't have to be pretty bad to give up a home run to Jordan Alvarez. That tends to happen. He's good for a couple of those, sometimes a game. But it sure doesn't help, you know. And I worry for Jose Leclerc's arm. My fall clean off. Um, (laughs) But he's been been sparkling this entire postseason. But at some point, you figure the man will get tired. He, you know, was not alone in his effort today. Like, Spores was good in relief of of Valdi when he first came out. But, yeah, it's like... Um, when, you know, when you have to bring Leclerc in in the eighth because Chapman just can't finish the inning, mm-hmm. like, yeah. that seems that seems not good, you know? Yeah, the the leash is not long. Yeah, the, there's not a lot of trust there right now, and I can understand why. I mean, he's uh, yeah. he's not closing, but even as a setup guy, it's like, oof, we'll, we'll let him try. <laughs> and yeah. then it's the first sign of trouble. We're going to go to Leclerc, who looked a little bit shaky himself, but he yeah. got the job done. Yeah, job. and And I guess there was a little more urgency on Dusty Baker's part, because what seemed like it could be a pivotal moment, potentially, and one that we were somewhat astounded by, but not really, <laughs> in the first game was when the Astros had the bases loaded in, what was it, the fourth, and Martin Maldonado was up, and we were calling for a pinch hitter. I mean, we weren't shocked, because it's pretty clear that Dusty just is going to stick with Maldonado, come hell or come high water, come come outs, <laughs> come other outs, but that you know, didn't work out. And then in game two, though, in game one, he ended up pinch hitting with Diaz. But yeah. but later in the game with right. two outs and nobody on. Right. Which, 
we we wondered, we speculated. I don't know if Verlander addressed this, but we thought, well, maybe his hands are tied. Maybe Verlander right. really just wants to pitch to Maldonado. Maybe it's sort of a personal catcher situation with him. Yeah. Sometimes, though, managers are hesitant to pinch hit early in the game, even if the highest leverage, most important moment comes early in the game. So I don't know which that was. But then in game two, Dusty did pinch hit earlier with Diaz, right? It was in the fifth with the bases loaded and no outs. And it didn't work. I mean, you know, Maldonado made an out in game one. In game two, Diaz struck out swinging and then Altuve struck out swinging and then Bregman grounded out and and the Rangers got out of that. Yeah. (laughs) So again, with all these manager moves, uh, we're not saying that if they had made the other one that everything would have worked out wonderfully for them because you make the right move and it works out wrong or you make the wrong move and it works out right. You never know. But you're just right. playing the percentages there. And and of course, you could say, well, with the pinch hit penalty and all, you'd be better off just putting Diaz in there from the beginning of the game. Yeah. But look, uh, Dusty seems convinced that there's something that has to be currently unquantified <laughs> about Maldonado, at least publicly, that is making him worth start over someone who is far superior offensively this season and seemingly not way worse defensively. So not that Diaz is great back there, but Maldonado seems to have slipped. So, Yeah. Yep, yep. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. yeah. On our live stream, I was I was saying, I was expressing some frustration at, at people who say, like, you can't quantify X. And that often seems to reveal a mindset of, you know, kind of an anti-data kind of stance, just because if I were saying that, I would say, well, we haven't quantified or you can't right. currently quantify, right? Whereas I have a lot of faith that that almost anything could be theoretically quantified. Some things are perhaps out of the realm of quantification, but we would have said that about a lot of things in the past that have since been quantified. So I would always reserve judgment on whether it can or can't be. But I think we could say it isn't currently. If there's something Maldonado is doing to settle down pitchers or whatever it is, it's just it's not currently being quantified by the public sphere. And and even if uh, we can't put a number on it, there must be some like upper range you could put on what it might be worth potentially or an estimate at least because we know what the other stuff is is costing anyway i mean maldonado i guess the last couple years he's done decently enough against lefties that you might think like diaz with the pinch hit penalty might not be that better but he only had the pinch hit penalty because he wasn't starting the game so the rangers bottom of the lineup has been great Meanwhile, so they get the homer out of Leody Taveras. So there's yep. just, you know, no weak spots in that lineup. And even the relative weak spots have produced pretty well. And we keep getting Evan Carter, defensive highlights. It's just they're just firing on all cylinders right now. Like even the bullpen is doing decently. The starting rotation, all the aspects that we kind of worried about the weaknesses of the Rangers have not been weaknesses. And the strength has been a strength. So, yeah. you know, the Astros are, are far from out of this series. But sure for the Rangers to to take two in Houston also right. that's that's big obviously I have two thoughts the first of which is you know the weaknesses haven't even been a weakness including the bullpen terms and conditions may apply but um yeah. so there's that piece of it I have a question for you so like uh clearly 
the the crowd that we saw in Houston, mostly Astros fans. And I'm sure the crowd that we will see in Arlington will be mostly Rangers fans. But like, is there a slight discount on home field advantage when it's an interstate matchup like this? Hmm. Mm. Maybe. It, that's, Maybe it comes down to the eternal question of what causes home field advantage. Right. So, if it's travel, if right. it's uh, jet lagged, if it's uh, yeah, maybe something like that, then yes, I guess. But mm. if it's more about the fan support, but then even then, if there's uh, less of a, a breakdown in terms of one team, I guess. Right. But if it's more about like familiarity with the ballpark or you sleep in your own bed at night or something, I guess the Rangers still have to stay at a hotel unless they're commuting intrastate. You know, is it the umpire responding to the crowd and giving slightly more favorable right. calls to the home team? This is an eternal mm. debate that has come up yeah. before. But, but I, you know, I don't know if there's enough of a, a sample to say, but maybe someone should look back at, at all the like intrastate or, or even the same city matchups. I guess you're not going to get right. enough subway series to tell, but yeah. Uh, yeah, the ones where you don't have to travel much and isolate those and see what the home field advantage looks like. Yeah, I guess we're going to find out. Well, yeah. we'll know more about that and we'll know more about this uh, game that's about to start. Oh, my God, Corbin mm-hmm. Carroll's got a little ponytail. You doing a little oh, ponytail now, Corbin? I wonder if he's <laughs> doing a little ponytail. I've, that's cute. Yeah. Okay. Well. <laughs> the, the NL rookie of the year. Adorable. He's so wee. Anyway, the Astros-Rangers series was uh, fairly evenly matched when it started, but uh, now there's a clear favorite. So we will see how that shakes out, and we'll talk more NLCS next time. Before we move on, can I I give a brief update? Because the Zips Mm game-by-game odds have updated as we were talking. So speedy. yeah, Dan's on it. You know, that Dan, <laughs> mm-hmm. he's good. The Rangers are now favored to win this series 79.2% to 20.8%. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's not going great for Houston. But again, it's a, it's a long series, so anything could happen. I mean, yep. you know, there are yep. only two things that could actually happen, like in terms of outcomes. <laughs> uh, but like either of those things could happen. So, yeah, yeah. Fromber, by the way. What, what's wrong with Fromber? Fromber's I don't know, just, man, but I don't know. Yeah. He His final start of the regular season against Seattle, which was a game that Houston ended up winning, if I recall correctly, despite him. He seems very flappable right now. Mm-hmm. He seems easily flapped. <laughs> and, like, again, it's a, you talk about stuff that's hard to, to quantify that we can't yet quantify in terms of its value. But, like... He doesn't seem um, comfortable up there, and uh, seems he seems flappable. Ben, like flapped. Mm-hmm. That's a what a weird word, you know, inflappable. Like, yeah. What is it about flags? What is that word about? What does it mean? You know. <laughs> oh, I'll try to look up some etymology while we're speaking here. But the only other playoff-related point is another thing that came up on our live stream, which is that I'm pro ump cam in mm. your anti-ump cam, although I guess not like against the concept, but no. against the, the execution of it. I It just makes me feel kind of queasy, but I, I do appreciate that it, 
I think really drives home just how incredible it is that anyone ever gets a hit at all because yeah. boy, do those pitches come in fast and often bendy. Yeah. I like <laughs> it. It is it's a shaky cam. It's like a GoPro style thing. It's yeah. on an umpire's helmet and he's yeah. uh it's got his head on a swivel. So if we could do some some stabilization of that image, uh, yes. do some fix it in post, then maybe it would be more watchable for you. But but I like it. It's not a brand new thing, but uh, you know, we've seen it tested and tried and showed off sometimes years ago and now it's back and I like it because yeah, it does really reinforce just how hard those pitches come in. You know, they throw really fast in the big leagues. You just do not have a lot of time to react. And so any notions you may have about uh, your ability to hit a baseball, which I think most people listening to this podcast, you know, probably are under not many illusions, but but any illusions you might be under, yeah, your illusions, your notions, uh, you will be disabused of them when you watch the umpire cam and (laughs) it's it's like you you blink and the ball's already past it. So, all right. So we have a guest for yeah. most of the rest of this episode. Sadly, you were not able to join me for this interview because of inopportune timing of roofer arrival. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's, uh, look, sometimes I feel very behind not owning a home, Ben. And some days I'm like, really nice to have a landlord that's taking care of this annoying business. Today was yeah. one of those days. Yeah, yeah but, but but they did not arrive at the scheduled time. They and did not. so that uh, that overlapped coincided with the interview yeah. and, and it turns out having roofers while you record a podcast, not, not ideal. Not ideal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so I did that solo, but you you did the homework, you prepped I for did. the interview. I did. And the interview is with Mike Veck, a baseball legend of sorts, son of, of course, the Hall of Famer Bill Veck, former owner of multiple teams, who's sort of a a baseball hero of mine and has come up many times. And Mike Veck is, you know, kind of cast in a similar mold. He is an operator of uh, many a minor league team and independent league team who has been known for very Veckian promotions and stunts. And, you know, we have him to thank for, say, the ball dog, the institution yeah. of, of the ball dog, the bat dog, the ball pig. That was his work as well. <laughs> Many other promotions he has tried over his decades in the game. He worked for his dad with the White Sox in the 70s and was the author of Disco Demolition Night, which yeah. was not his finest hour, as no. uh, he acknowledges in the interview and also in yeah. the documentary. So, After that, he was out of baseball for years, worked his way back in through the independent leagues, most famously the St. Paul Saints, but he's with a lot of minor league teams over the years and indie ball teams, the Miami Miracle and the Charleston River Dogs and the Broxton Rocks and the Hudson Valley Renegades and the Butte Copper Kings and the Sioux Falls Canaries. He's done it all. He's been everywhere. And we wanted to talk to him. Well, I would have wanted to talk to him for no reason. He's uh, yeah. Mike Vec, but also because he is the subject of a new Netflix documentary called The yeah. Saint of Second Chances, which came out just recently, and we watched it. So what do you think? I really enjoyed it. It did a nice job of balancing the realities of why he would feel like he would need a redemption arc, why he did need some you know, redeeming in his life, why Mm -hmm. he struggled and then had to 
you know, find his way out of it and manage to, and still found the the very obvious sort of joy that this guy has for the game and how personal it is for him and how, you know, entrenched it is and was in his family, not only in terms of his relationship with his father, but his relationship with his own children. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think it did a really nice job of presenting, like, struggle as complicated. It does not sound from the documentary, like, meant for, certainly didn't mean for Disco Demolition Night to go the, the way that it did. He didn't mean for it to cause the pain and harm that it did on, you know, people of color, on the queer community, which were, you know, who were at sort of the genesis of disco. And that music is precious in a way that I think got lost once it became mainstream. He didn't mean for there to be any harm there, but like was willing to acknowledge that harm was done, you know, and Mm -hmm. that it felt alienating and kind of violent and, and awful to, vulnerable communities. So I appreciated the acknowledgement of that in a way that didn't feel kind of qualified. And, you know, I think that like, there is a there is a showman in him, obviously, (laughs) right? Um, There's definitely a showman, sort of a streak of that that runs in the family. But I, I don't know, like, it didn't feel cynical. You know, I think that doing stuff that's different can be kind of, you know, can hit in different ways. It can kind of wash over you differently. And this felt like it really was about like having fun and having a place where like people could come and enjoy themselves, even if it was a little goofy and it was non-traditional. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think he took providing an opportunity for redemption for others seriously in a way that also wasn't exploitative or gimmicky, you know? Mm-hmm. And like, I think that's a a really lovely instinct and impulse um, and one that seems to be born of really genuine empathy from, from him. So I was glad to have mm-hmm. um, had a chance to like watch it and kind of get to know that chapter of the family's story because like, you, you know, you know, we know so much about his dad. And I think the only impression I had of him was that he was one of the authors of Disco Demolition Night. And that was kind of, that was candidly really all I knew. I mean, I knew he had been an indie ball operator and had mm-hmm. minor league stuff, but I didn't really know very much about him. So, uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. And there's some other star power associated yeah. with it. it uh, it's narrated by Jeff Daniels. And he should narrate Charlie so Day. many more things. Yeah, he should narrate most yeah, things. Yeah, he's <laughs> <And> great. <laughs> Yeah, we should. I should record my parts for this podcast and then hire Jeff Daniels <laughs> to just say them after we record. And Charlie Day plays Mike Beck, yeah. the younger Mike yeah. Beck. There are sort of these recreation scenes of the younger Mike Beck that Charlie Day is Mike Beck. Yeah. And it's uh, directed by people who've uh, worked on some some big documentaries yeah. in the past, you know, like uh, produced uh, 20 Feet from Stardom and Won't You Be My Neighbor and Marwin Call and all these things. So check it out. It's a 90-ish yeah. minute documentary and it's a... Uh, uplifting at times and sad at some other times, but it uh, gives you a good picture of uh, a baseball character and a baseball lifer. So I'll be back in just a moment with Mike Veck. We will talk about 
growing up Vec and his dad and the origins of modern independent baseball and when Daryl Strawberry played for him and Disco Demolition Night and the Savannah Bananas and much, much more. The only thing is I didn't dream that I would create once again a monster like Dr. Frankenstein that would try and usurp the ball game. Because you see, with all the instant replays and all these things, people forget to watch the game because they know we can see that. Where do you activate the fireworks when somebody hits a home run? Well, the switch is just up on the wall over my right shoulder. When we're sure the home run is hit, we'll flip the switch and automatically it'll, it'll fire the fireworks. All right, I am joined now by the man, the myth, the legend, the baseball maverick, the impresario, Mike Veck, who is the star of The Saint of Second Chances, the new Netflix documentary. I don't know if he's the saint himself or he's the one who received the second chances, but we're happy to have him on this podcast. Hello, Mike. How are you? And of course, you know for certain, Ben, that I ain't the saint. So that means I must have been the recipient (laughs) of all of those second chances. God, I've lost count and I'm old. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it's more than second, I guess. It's uh, third and fourth and fifth and sixth. But (laughs) Absolutely. I I think my main question, my first question after watching this movie and, of course, uh, knowing about your dad and the history of the Vex, is there a boring branch of the Vec family when when you get together at holidays? Is there sort of, uh, you know, staid, just kind of quiet, not characters at all? Are, are there Vecs like that out there? I don't think so. <laughs> okay. I don't think so. We had only one. We had only one rule during any holiday. And that was we left the swords at the door, which worked really well. <laughs> so we ultimately you know, loved one another, but like any big rollicking family, you know, that could devolve. But but when we were all kind of adults, we made an agreement that we'd leave any disagreements outside uh-huh. and um, just love one another inside. And it worked really well after after a few fist fights and after a few, you know, marred holidays, <laughs> we realized that that probably was the the smart way to do it when you when you when you raise opinionated people the way my mother and father did <laughs> you know you're bound to have some disagreements yeah yeah maybe there's a, a distant branch like some some cousins you rarely see because uh, they don't really fit in with the the vec aesthetic <laughs> i don't know maybe well, you there, don't. <laughs> there are lots of there are lots of those that I rarely see, but that's not really my choice. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they stopped giving you chances at some point, I guess. <laughs> that's right. Or they get the invitations after the fact. Right, yeah. Is it is it nature or nurture? Because we're all products of our environment, right? And, and you are your father's son. I mean, we are all influenced by the people who raised us or the people we were around. And so if you had grown up with a, a different parent or parents or in a different household, do you think you would be much different or is it just it's in the genes somewhere? I, I think it's a combination, but I think it's more nurturing. Mm-hmm. I, I, I really do. I think that we all arrive, you know, as these little packages or as Loudon Wainwright III said, dilated to meet you. You know, we <laughs> pop out and, and here we are. And and But I think there's a certain point where the people that you hang around with influence you. The thing that made me so 
spectacularly uh, convinced that Morgan Neville and Jeff Malmberg and the folks from, from Tremolo were the right people was the way they nurtured this film. It, it reminded me of the way, uh, you know, you want to be as a parent. And, of course, you never can be as a child because you're finding your own way. Mm-hmm. But, but I think that nurturing is, is really underrated. And I, I think of people who, you know, live in New York City and have, and have never seen Pikes Peak or, mm-hmm. or been to the Grand Canyon, you know, and, and, and that's, not, that, that's not naturing. That's a lack of nurturing of mm-hmm. some sort. So, you know. Yeah, I, I can identify. I'm a New Yorker, <laughs> but I have been to the Grand Canyon, so <laughs> there's that. Yes. <laughs> so what made you decide that you wanted to be the subject of a documentary now? You've had this cinematic life with a lot of rises and falls, but, but what, what made this the moment to tell your story? Well, you're familiar with the, the fellow who convinced me. You know, I know you've had conversations off and on with my son night train and he was the one that convinced me that we should do this and and his approach was totally different you know he said i i i love being fourth generation back mm-hmm. that's exactly what he said i love being a fourth generation back and i kind of looked at him and you know i know it's been difficult for him on many levels to be to be my son, and God knows it was difficult to be, you know, my father's son, but it was also difficult for my father. My father, so much so, as William Lewis Vex's son, that he changed his name legally to Bill. Mm-hmm. But it was Nitrain who said, don't look at this like, you know, the discomfiture that you might have felt when you were first starting, or the same that I felt, but look at this as a hundred plus years of people making their living in this wonderful arena with this wonderful game. Look at it that way. And I was, I was blown away. And I looked at him and I thought, you know, what a great, what a great perspective that I had almost lost my entire life because I just was, you know, oh, it's so tough being his kid, you know, blah, blah, blah. And Nitrate changed that. With yeah. That conversation. Yeah, it's in your blood. I'm I'm sure it's hard to get out from the shadow of your dad in whatever industry that is. If your parent was accomplished in some way, especially if you go into the same line of work. I mean, was there a, a time when you were running as far away from that as you possibly could? Oh yeah, I got out of college on Tuesday, left Loyola, joined a rock and roll band, and we were the house band in uh, a beach town in Maryland or Delaware, you know, in five days. And the only one who thought that was very cool was my dad. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I spent three years on the road, learned an awful lot. And um, then because I got out of college in three years, I got a year off to drive around the country. So those four years driving around the country and playing in the rock and roll band really gave me a, a tremendous um, bedrock. For whatever career, you know, you learn to talk, you learn to to deal with different people, you learn to deal with frustration, and you learn to deal with the road and failure because, you know, every other week you get fired because you're not good enough or you're not generating enough income. So mm-hmm. I, I spent a lot of years on the run, and then suddenly we had 
<laughs> my dad and I had lunch, was a, you know, which was really a silly way of saying, let's go drink some beer. And, and we, we sat around for 10 or 11 hours, and he said to me at the end of this, he said, why don't, why don't um, you come to Chicago? I'm going to buy the White Sox, and I would love to have you work with me. And I was like, pardon me? Are you looking over your shoulder? I mean, this is, this is we were really, I, I mean, estranged than in every sense of the word. Mm -hmm. And I was, but I was secretly so, I was, I, I was intrigued. I was flattered. I was intrigued. I was frightened. But he was such a magic man to me that I thought, you know, I'm going to do this. And so, of course, arrogantly, I told him, I'll, I'll do it for two years. Well, I stayed six and a half. And I never had more fun in my life. Yeah. I just never expected it to be the way it turned out to be. But it yeah. was really a, a wonderful education and of course i got the bug and of all the father and son conversations i've had in my life i never had the son i'm buying a major league baseball team conversation <laughs> you want to come work for me i i wouldn't mind having that conversation but i could see why it was a little intimidating but as you describe in the movie it gave you a chance to work alongside your dad and get to know your dad in a different way and Man, you talk about a great education. You look at the people who were involved with the team at that time, not just your dad, but people coming up like Dave Dombrowski, like Tony La Russa, right? Like Paul Richards, who came back to manage a, a season in 76, right? Just an incredibly smart baseball guy and kind of a maverick himself. So what an education being around that milieu. Yeah, it was a, it was a privilege. And there was a great privilege, which was also a really good thing. You know, I mean, I used to look at the at the Kennedys with great admiration, but think to myself, gosh, how do they live not only under that shadow, but the money? And I've come to the realization that the, the reason that you could be a vet and not be squashed was because there was never any money. Yeah. I mean, you know, you make a lot of money one day, you know, and then the next day you blow it on another club or a bad club or, you know, but the whole beauty of it, of the cyclic nature of it, was you were were funding a pursuit that you loved madly. So I think I think it was a lot easier for the at least three generations of Vex because there never was any any money. But there was this great like the Kennedy White House, you know, when you when you hang around with McNamara and Sorensen and all of these intellectual giants. You know, mom and dad hung around with writers and mm -hmm. members of the media and people who were were real Renaissance people. So you got lots of of different perspectives. Bob Fischel, you know, just these wonderful characters who were Damon Runyon-esque, yeah, and yet had this wonderful other side. So the education was amazing. I mean, Larry Doby, Satchel Paige, yeah. two real giants in terms of changing the way the world operated in race relations were just always hanging around the house. And you just kind of thought, <laughs> you know, the Doby kids were like, they were just, they were just vex. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and there was no, you know, there was, there was never any, Hey, here come the Doby kids. You know, mm -hmm. we just, we, we all grew up together, and I, I see that now. It's what a tremendous advantage in how wise my mother and father were. Yeah, and and I'm more interested in, in asking you about other aspects of your career in the film than Disco Demolition, just because it has been covered so much. But 
you know, because I guess it was the nadir of your career to that point, it was the thing that you needed a second chance because of. Obviously, it was clear immediately that things hadn't gone the way that you'd planned, aside from the fact that you did sell a lot of tickets, which was the goal. But when did it become clear that there was this sort of darker undertone to that event? As the documentary mentions, you know, in in retrospect, I think especially, it's clear that, oh, gosh, there were sort of racist and and homophobic sentiments going on here with the way that people responded and, and just the atmosphere in the park that day. Was that apparent in the moment or is that something that you came to appreciate over time? No, I, I, you know, I mean, because I had the idea, I I can speak to, you know, its purity. Yeah. I look at it now through the lens and that was once again, the influence of, of, of my son who said, look at this now, would you do it now? No, of course I wouldn't do it now. Well, why wouldn't you do it now? Well, it would have overtones of being racist and homophobic. Well, what, what was it then? I said, it was a tongue-in-cheek shot at people. we just done a disco promotion. You can't be, you know, uh, a guy who hired the first gays and the first women to pitch in an all-male professional league and blind announcers and the things and not, and not have a code, you know, a, a code of behavior, a code of ethics. I, I, I hesitate to say that. But... It never occurred to me it was a Bob Seger night, for God's sake. We were just celebrating rock and roll, and over the years, it's, it's changed. And the idea that it's, that it's hurt people, um, as I say in the film, you know, that was the last thing I wanted to do. This was just to put butts in seats. Mm-hmm. And um, so I understand, and, and, you know, that's the way it should be. I, I, we portrayed it how it seemed to me, and I apologized which is the first time I have um, apologized because I never really thought about it. Mm-hmm. But, I, you know, it's going to have to be, you know, history to, to judge it. It's be a little <laughs> maniacal for me to go, well, <laughs> this event was so catastrophic. You know, it, it was what it was. Mm-hmm. And it was a mistake by today's standards. And by those standards, I don't think there were sentiments. I certainly didn't create it. Mm-hmm. And I don't think Dahl was smart enough to, <laughs> 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 to think it. So that kind of covers all of it. <laughs> so after that, and after your dad is forced to sell the team, you're out of baseball for years. You're looking for a way back in. You're writing to anyone and everyone. Take me back. You want that second chance. Eventually it comes, and it comes in indie ball. And, and I want to talk about the beginning of indie ball because independent baseball as the institution we know today started 30 years ago with the Northern and Frontier Leagues in 1993. And back then there were doubts about whether this was viable, whether there was an appetite for this just anywhere, but particularly where you were in the shadow of the twins, right? So what were the skeptics saying at that time and why did you think or hope that they were wrong? Well, they, they, I hope they were wrong. I'll cover the second half first because I put every nickel I had <laughs> and some I didn't have in it. And so I didn't have the, the luxury of it failing. And like any crusade, you know, if you start to think about what could happen, you, you'd never get off the schneid. So, you know, I get to town in November of 91. I had people with whom I worked at, at the White Sox who turned me down, didn't want to invest. I had people that I was 
very friendly with and who I admired a great deal said, you're crazy for doing this. I never got anybody to say that we could do more than 2,000 a game if we were lucky. And so I went into this with a great, you know, fear and trepidation. The best baseball writers in the upper Midwest, you know, Sid Hartman and, and Patrick Royce, you know, delighted in saying 45 days, he'll lose all his money, he'll be out of business. Mm-hmm. But Andy McPhail actually helped me because the more he ripped, the more people bought tickets. <laughs> so I was appreciative, uh, you know, and it was, you know, if I, this is the part that people, you, because historically you, you have documented it, you, you'll understand. But most people, when they heard fun is good, they're like, what is this about? Mm-hmm. And I had partners who said, hey, we should be talking about baseball. Well, really, the Twins won two World Series within four years, six years of our opening at Midway. We should talk about baseball. If you want to see the best baseball, then you should go to the Metro. Mm-hmm. But if you want to have fun, and you want to have affordable fun, and you want a family to be able to come out and have a lot of laughs, it's a family operation for your family run by a family who have no other means of income. So that's what I believe made it successful. I, I think people knew that it would people just like them running the ballpark for them. Yeah, and you mentioned in the movie there's a little interlude about when Daryl Strawberry came to play for the Saints after you had established the team as a successful franchise, and he was in need of a second chance or a third or a fourth at that point, which you were reluctant at first to extend him until your wife said, hey, you got a chance. Why don't you give a chance to someone else? And, of course, he did incredibly well there, right? And, you know, you talk about the best baseball being at the higher levels, and so if that's what you're most interested in, that's where you're going to go. But when you get Daryl Strawberry past his prime, you know, he's 34, but but still a above-average big league hitter at that point, unleashed on the Northern League. And in his 132 plate appearances, he hit 435, 538, 1,000 with 18 home runs. That's something I actually value about indie ball is that sometimes you see guys who are just so good, just too good for the level. You know, you kind of you get a glimpse of just how great the big leaguers are because they're playing against professional players who themselves are extraordinarily talented. And yet they're a few rungs down the ladder and it makes all the difference in the world. So what was it like to watch him just run roughshod over the league that year? Well, it, it was the natural progression. Because the first year, in 93, we had Paul Durham. Mm -hmm. And people don't realize that on the 93 Saints, the first year, five players, five players from the lowly independent Saints went to the big leagues. Yeah. It's an astounding, you know, Mike Mims and and, and Charles and, and of course, Kevin Millar. But we had set the tone with, with Paul Durham. And then Kevin Millar developed. The next thing we needed was a Daryl Strawberry because we needed somebody, one, who we didn't need him to sell tickets. And that mm-hmm. was one of the selling points. And two, my reticence about hiring him was not so much because I was opposed to that I had any care about what his particular past had been. It was more with the fact that, and this gentleman just died, but Jim Capel, yeah. if you check, mm-hmm. tore my shorts off <laughs> and said, if if Vec hires him, he's a phony. He doesn't stand for any of the things. And I love Jim Cable. Mm-hmm. I, I think when he died a few days ago, that's one of the worst. 
I mean, he was just one of the of the best and the brightest yeah. that we had. And that gave me great pause. And that never is spoken. And Daryl loved being with the Saints because we weren't pouring him to sell tickets. It wasn't come see Daryl Strawberry. And what he did for the league, he went to Columbus. He hit three home runs in two games. And then he went right on to the Yankees. So it showed that he had been playing when he hit those 18 home runs in 29 games at a high level. But he didn't have to make a lot of adjustments between St. Paul, this lowly independent team, and Columbus, the AAA club for the Yankees. Mm-hmm. He, he progressed from one to the other, and that said to even the staunchest detractors, hey, there's a caliber of baseball. I mean, like you say, you're, if you make it and play professionally, you're in the top 4 to 5%. Mm-hmm. Of, of, of it's a difficult game to play. And like you point out, when you got Jack Morris out thinking you on the mound or Strawberry hitting dingers left and right, and I mean, he hit some bombs that are still in orbit. Mm-hmm. But it that that was a great year, that year of 96 for independent ball. It, that's the year that I think we really stabilized and became you know, I, I, pillars a bit much, but but we were certainly in the food chain yeah. suddenly of of major league baseball. Oh yeah, you you proved the concept. <laughs> so, what is the key to a a great promotion? I mean, with you, it must be just an instinctive sixth sense at this point because you're so steeped in this world. You learned at your dad's knee, or I guess your dad's wooden leg, maybe as the case may be, right? And so even better, <laughs> you've been in this world your whole life, if someone pitches you on an idea, do you know immediately, oh, great idea, bad idea? I mean, I guess disco demolition, <laughs> maybe not not the greatest idea, but it, it worked in the sense that it sold tickets. But, but all the promotions you've done with the Saints and your other teams since, do you know sort of snap judgment? It has the ingredients of a successful promotion that's going to bring people to the park and send them home happy. Or are you sometimes surprised by what works or doesn't work? You're always surprised. If you take it for granted, as soon as you think you know, you have to get out of the business because you don't. And the beauty of it, what keeps us coming back is it's just never the same. You know, you try something and on Tuesday it works and on Friday it, it doesn't work at all. It's a, it's a sense of timing. But the thing that, that I really learned from, from my dad was the democracy of joy. And that is that laughter, if it makes you laugh, you got a pretty good chance that it's going to work. And, and that's kind of the barometer. And you need to take input from everybody. That's what makes it fun. That's what makes it a crusade. And let's face it, everybody, every single one of us have ideas. As soon as I hear somebody say, I'm not creative, I don't have an idea, I know that's somebody I can work with because you just need to build up their capability of believing in themselves. I mean, great ideas come from everywhere. It was a lady who said to my dad, put the names on the back of the uniform so I don't have to spend a nickel to buy a program. (laughs) I know you're hustling me. You just, you know, you you put the number on the back so you have to buy a program to know who it is. I don't want to. (laughs) So my dad gets credit for changing the face of sports, but the fact is it was an offhanded comment by a woman in the stands that absolutely he couldn't let go of. Yeah. And that's creation and promotion at its best. Yeah. Steal the idea and take credit. Right. Your dad's 
well-deserved reputation as a showman, I think, overshadows his acumen as an architect of teams. Sometimes those things went hand in hand. You know, signing Satchel Paige sold a whole load of tickets, but it also made the difference to a Cleveland team that won the pennant by one game and went on to win the World Series, right? So it's not mutually exclusive, but... He was just a smart baseball operator in so many ways. So do you find yourself, you know, people will say, oh, yeah, he signed Eddie Goodell, right? You know, the most famous promotions, but but maybe forget some of the other ways that he was innovative when it came to just the team on the field. Yeah, I mean, I love you for that because nobody ever <laughs> really, nobody ever points that out. But I mean, he won a world championship in, in Cleveland seven attendance record, but Satchel Paige that same year, drawing 78, I think his uh, his appearance in a night game in Old Municipal Stadium, still holds a record for the largest attendance at a, at a night game, but but he was also 6-1 and one in 48 with a two-point, I don't know, 4-7 or 4-3 ERA. Those are pretty good numbers for a guy that really didn't know how old he was himself. Mm-hmm. You know, so the, the contributions that he made to to race relations, and I'm speaking specifically of my dad now, and I'm going to sound a little bit like his son, but hopefully not too much. But that was a huge contribution. He was a huge fan of the game. And what he brought to it, Ben, more than anything, was he respected his players because he understood that they could do something that he couldn't. Mm -hmm. And he had great respect for the town. Sure, he tried to trade Boudreaux all of the offseason in 47. <laughs> mm-hmm. All he did was be the MVP and, and win him a world championship. Yeah. But, but the fact is, is that he made some great moves. He, 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 he's like a Dave Dombrowski, who's a wonderful tinkerer. We're going to see tonight, for example, what Dave can do. Mm-hmm. But, but Dad and Dave, Dave learned at his, at his knee. Dad just didn't have the money. Yeah. to do it. But but he was constantly, you know, and, and people go, well, what happened to your dad in Major League Baseball? Well, that's simple. He he testified in the flood case against the reserve clause, <laughs> and that made him a pariah. So that the other owners love to say, oh, yeah, that's Beck with his shtick, you know, Eddie Goodell. That was so they could downplay his capabilities with putting a ball club together. Well, your dad's books with Ed Lynn, Vekas and Rec, and The Hustler's Handbook are two of my favorite baseball books ever. And there are so many great, absolutely 100% authentically true stories in those books. And I'd say there may be some stories with some small embellishments, uh, some tall tales, or at least uh, medium height tales, some slight stretching of the truth from time to time. And I wonder whether your dad was like that in real life when he was holding forth, when he was spinning yarns. Did he sometimes uh, garnish what actually happened in real life a little bit, even though his, his stories, the true ones, were so good to begin with? Actually, he, he, he really didn't do that. Uh-huh. He, um, and, and, and I'll tell you, to back that up, he was sued or threatened to be sued 62 times or some <laughs> ridiculous number when Vegas and Rec came out. Uh-huh. There wasn't a single one that went to court and obviously not one ever judged. So he had unfailing accuracy if it came to something that was important. Right. In terms of whether it was the whether it was a story, all I can tell you, Ben, is he never lied to me. People, I got into a huge fight with Saber over the fact that how does anybody historically know he really tried to buy the Phillies? Mm-hmm. And my response is because he told me. 
that mm-hmm. he did. And so that's kind of how, now that doesn't mean that late at night or like just now, it probably wasn't 62. I don't remember the number, but it was in the twenties. I know that, that he was sued. And so I, I, I he really wasn't, he was a great storyteller. He never told jokes. He just told stories. So he spun a couple and I'm sure he wasn't above. <laughs> yeah. He, he wasn't a, <laughs> Saint, <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> no matter how many chances he got, none of us, none yeah. of us qualified. So. Yeah. Can you foresee any scenario where we could get a Vecchian character, and that could be Bill or Mike, as the owner of an MLB team again, or is it just such a big business, so corporate that that could never happen again? Well, I mean, you want to accomplish you 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 want a combination. You know, of, of, I, I had great hope for Arthur Moreno. I had great hope for him. He came out of the minor leagues. He moved in. He lowered prices. He did a lot of things. And I thought maybe one of our own had reached and, you know, and gotten into the palace. I do think it's possible. I think there are some great characters out there. You know, Jesse Cole run the Savannah Bananas doesn't have a lot of, a lot of money right now, but he'll get a lot of backing. And and I do think that it, everything's cyclic, and I, so I think that a character will come back mm-hmm. that will resemble my dad. It was interesting, though, since you mentioned it, that the original working title for the film was The Hustlers Something, uh-huh. and it didn't test well with women, uh-huh. which I found very interesting, because I always kind of liked that. Yeah. The second one was Screwball, which I didn't I took that one a little personally, but, you know, (laughs) so that gives you an idea. But um, he told a lot, dad told a lot of stories about his father and his interaction with his father. And I I think that's what, you know, where the love of keeping it somewhat factual originated. I was going to ask you about the Savannah Bananas because they are clearly operating in a a Vecchian mold and lineage and the same sort of uh, fun is good principle, right? So how have you followed their progress? Have they been in contact with you? Have you admired and and approved of what they've been able to do? Absolutely. Jesse called me before he started the whole thing and he said, if you had one bit of advice for me, what would it be? And I said, become your team, become your team. When we moved to St. Paul, I had no idea it was going to work the way it did. Obviously, you know, you being a historian, you can look at that and go, he could never have known. And I didn't know. Mm -hmm. But one thing I did know was that I had to, I had to either take the credit if it was going to be successful, hog it in my case, (laughs) or take the lumps if it failed miserably the way it was predicted. And I said to Jesse, be your team. Hmm. And so the next day he went out and bought a yellow suit and became the head banana or whatever (laughs) he calls himself. And it's worked. So now he gets to enjoy that, you know, and and take a couple of bounds. But if it fails, he was also there to take the lumps. He perfected, uh, uh, you know, the 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 uh, technology of his time. I mean, Instagram was tailor made for his delivery. Yeah, and that's what I most admire about, and that's what I think that people who are good in whatever field they do, they've mastered the technology of time. Men and women who understand the message and then how to sell it, and he has done that. 
Would you in the 90s and your dad in the 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s have been all over social media if that was a thing back then? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. And, and you know, I mean, uh, think about the old man suggesting that, that, they, that they revenue share. Mm-hmm. Huh. <laughs> you know, imagine when you're operating the St. Louis Browns and the Yankees hear that, and by the time they're done laughing, you know, that doesn't sound like much of an idea, does it? But mm-hmm. it's worked pretty well for <laughs> for the NFL. Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, mine is we never designed a, a promotion that didn't have a media component. I mean, the Saints televised their home games, and I'm the first one to say it was an access channel, absolutely, but we televised from day one Mm -hmm. to this day, we still televise or they still televise all of their home games, but we televise from the first day. That was important because I wanted scouts to be watching. Mm -hmm. It wasn't so much. I was looking for the numbers, but I was hoping that, you know, scouts would follow it. They obviously weren't going to come out in droves, you know, until the second or third year. Once Millar was, you know, shown to have the tools he had, the scouts came out, (laughs) <laughs> right. And, and and how do you encounter and assemble the kindred spirits that that have kind of come along and become your partners over the years? I guess most famously Bill Murray, right? But but people who see things in the same sort of slightly absurd kind of off kilter, we're all just having fun here and trying to put butts in the seats, that sort of uh, ethos as opposed to just the, this is super serious and we must be businesslike at all times. I mean, you know, how do you connect with someone like Bill or, or the other partners that you've developed over the years? You cannot hire ever for a position. And that's the mistake people make. When I was looking for my lieutenant in St. Paul, it was Annie Heidecoper, an expert in home health care. So if she's an expert in home health care, how good do you think she's going to be when it comes to customer service? Mm. And Dave Wright, Dave Wright, a curmudgeon. It's hard to be a curmudgeon. He could guffaw. But Dave Wright was a stringer for TV Guide and knew more about stats than any of the clubs, so much so that his nickname was Stats. Mm-hmm. And so I put together people who were not experienced in terms of baseball. You can teach anybody that. What you can't teach them is that kind of, as you mentioned, a kind of absurdist way you look at the world. Somebody either understands what, you know, I spent a day and a half in the Warhol Museum in, in Pittsburgh with my wife. Mm-hmm. You, you people either understand what he was doing or or at least enjoy what he was doing or they don't you know and and so the reason I hired Dave Dombrowski for example was he was a hundred and eighty percent opposite from me mm-hmm. you've got to hire people not in your image and likeness but just who are interesting to you and so the hires in St Paul were much more important than you know, the fun and games department, mm-hmm. as we said, the personalities. I mean, I said it was fun is good because I couldn't say it was Caddyshack. But I mean, <laughs> I, I met Bill Murray, shook hands with him, looked in his eyes and said, oh, boy, a fellow traveler. Uh-huh. <laughs> and and imagine this. He's been successful. He didn't train wreck his career. <laughs> and, you know, I was just drawn and you don't have to explain, you know, and so some of the great gags. He he took a cigarette 
as a prop, a cigarette and a St. Bernard. <laughs> and after a ball game, he stood on top of the dugout with only six or eight of us there. He turned around, lit the cigarette, took the St. Bernard on a leash, and he turned back around, and he was Marge shot. <laughs> you see my point? <laughs> I mean, you realize that he's trained his whole life to be an actor, but you, but, but when someone turns around and becomes, forget somebody else, but an, uh, another gender, another, you know, this is a this is a mark of a really talented guy, and so you know everything is kind of a vignette that he would do. It's like a Saturday Night Live sketch. You have music out in front, and you have jugglers, and you have painters working, and photographers, and it's it's a theater street fair, mm-hmm. you know. And it was based on a on a Murray bit. I just kind of had to make sure I didn't steal it directly from him. So. But we did come up with fun is good before life is good. Life is good ripped us off, not vice versa. <laughs> okay. And I guess lastly, what do you make of the relationship between the minors and independent baseball and Major League Baseball these days? The control that MLB has exerted over the minors, the contraction of the minors, the partnerships with some independent leagues – has that been bad for baseball? Has that been good in some ways? What do you think the ramifications of that are and will be? I think that independent baseball is going to become in the next three to five years more important than it ever has been before. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think the control issue, which, you know, as you, you do this and you talk to people, this is your line of work, right? And you mm-hmm. talk to people, they will tell you that this is really about control. It's really a control issue. I mean, yeah. cutting the clubs down to 120 I think was a terrible decision, Mm -hmm. but there is one good thing that they're trying to do. And that is that one baseball is a fine idea Mm -hmm. because we needed somebody to bring us all together. I don't think it's the current commissioner. And I think that all of those towns that have been denied a ball club will, there will be independent clubs springing up everywhere. And the best of the new lot Every five years or every three years, let's say you review it. I mean, imagine. And St. Paul is a AAA affiliate of the... I'm standing up and gesticulating <laughs> on my porch right now. They are the AAA affiliate of the Twins. Forget, it was the highest price ever paid for a minor league team. Mm-hmm. It's the AAA affiliate of the Minnesota Twins, 30 years after they predicted failure, where there's 10 markets right now that are dying. I wouldn't mention one. Rosemont. I won't mention. (laughs) Rosemont makes a lot of sense for the Chicago White Sox one way or another. Right? Mm -hmm. So I think if like soccer, you know, they were to harvest three or four markets from the independent into, you know, the club, like we we were suddenly in the club. Yeah. I think that could be very good for baseball. I think the inclusion of baseball for all and the women's programs is – Terrific. I'm one of the few people who looks at this. I think the end, the NFL is making me crazy with this Taylor Swift. <laughs> I mean, have you seen the numbers? I don't know if they've come out yet, but it's going to be the biggest concert opening in the history of the world. I mean, that includes Woodstock and Got Live, Get Your Yaya's Out. I mean, that's mm-hmm. some pretty good live albums, right? This thing's going to blow it away. And here's the NFL sitting there going, 
God, this morning I opened a paper and she's holding hands with Travis Kelsey. Yeah. Yeah. If only you could have gotten, I don't know, Madonna or someone to date a St. Paul Saint, you would have had it made. Hey, I had one of those people. I can't remember who it was, but <laughs> for four days she, she came around. But anyhow, <laughs> but you see what I think? I, I really do. I think long term, it could be good. I think short term has been a disaster for some of the markets, unfairly so. Mm-hmm. But I, But they'll come back just. Because there's so many markets that are just too good, you know, so it's a tremendous opportunity for for independent ball. I hope you're right as a, a lover of indie ball myself and a lover also of the documentary that features Mike. It's called The Saint of Second Chances. It's streaming on Netflix now, and I would highly recommend all of the books about and by Vex. Of course, Mike's Fun is Good and The Hustler's Handbook and Vex is in Rec by Mike's dad, Bill. Just incredible books with Ed Lynn. What other teams are you involved with right now? Is there anything you'd care to, to promote uh, your, your minor league empire these days? If Bill Murray and Mike Beck are involved just a tiny bit in Charleston, suppose they were going to go home to Illinois. Mm. Maybe Joliet. Uh-huh. Oh, where every employee is named Jake. <laughs> Have a complaint? Go see Jake. <laughs> Hot dog's not right? Go see Jake. Customer service stinks? See Jake. I have to go now, Ben. It's yep. been a lot of fun. Yes. Thank you. Thanks so much. And by the way, call me anytime when, you know, <laughs> I'm, 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 I always love to talk to somebody who loves baseball. All right. I appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. Thanks, man. All right. Well, after we recorded, the Phillies continued their home run hitting winning ways to take a one nothing lead in their series over the Diamondbacks. They beat them 5-3 to three in Game 1. More on that series next time. Also, one follow-up for you. On our last episode, I did a stat blast with Zach Cram where we compared regular season stats to postseason stats just to see how the scoring environment is different in the postseason. And as we acknowledged on that stat blast, we didn't account for the fact that you have different mixes of teams in the regular season and postseason. So we were just trying to answer the question of how does postseason look different, if at all, from the regular season without accounting for the fact that postseason teams are different to begin with from teams that don't make the postseason or all teams combined. And we got an email from listener Andrew McKinney, who went a step further and accounted for that different makeup of teams. He writes, episode 2072 Stat Blast made me curious how much of the playoff differences were attributable to selection bias in playoff teams versus a difference in playoff environment. I average rate stats for all playoff teams versus non-playoff teams in the regular season since 2012 and then compared to the playoffs. This isn't perfect because the raw numbers underlying the percentages are different and playoff teams have varying samples, but it should be fine to highlight overall trends. The overall takeaway, he says, is that these offensive trends are even more pronounced when you consider the team offensive strength. Instead of a drop from 4.4 runs per game on average to 3.9 runs per game, it's actually more like a drop from 4.8 runs per game to 3.9 runs per game for the playoff teams. Most offensive categories follow this trend, including home run rate, strikeout rate, OPS, WOBA, BABIP, swing percentage, and chase percentage. Playoff teams are significantly different at some things that did carry over and are partially attributable to team skill, such as walk rate, 
exit velocity, barrel rate, fastball velocity for pitchers, zone percentage for hitters, pace for hitters, three true outcome percentage, stolen bases per game, and slider percentage. And a few of the stats that seem most attributable to team selection, for example, in the regular season, non-playoff teams have an exit velocity on their batted balls of 88.2 miles per hour, Playoff teams, 88.8, but in the playoffs, that goes down to 88.6, or barrel rate, 6.3% for the non-playoff teams, 7.1% for the playoff teams, 7.8% playoff frequency, or walk rate, 7.9% non-playoff teams, 8.7% playoff teams, that goes down to 8.2% in the playoffs. Overall, he says, as expected, much more has to do with October slash the postseason than the makeup of the teams, but there's a significant difference there because playoff teams, of course, tend to be better at things during the regular season than the non-playoff teams. So that does skew things somewhat, and that shows you that it's even more of an offensive drop-off in October when you account for the fact that those playoff teams typically score more runs in the regular season. Of course, they also prevent more runs, and in the postseason, that comes into play too. Even by those standards, I think this has been a low-scoring postseason, but we'll have to take a look at that a little later in the month. Thanks to Andrew for taking a look at this. I will link to his spreadsheet from the show page. A quick PSA for you, by the way, I do do some other podcasts, some non-baseball podcasts, if you're interested in checking those out. You can often find them on the Ringerverse feed. I host a video game podcast now called Butt Mash with Jessica Clemens. We've been busy this month, lots of video games to play and to talk about. If you enjoy hearing me talk about baseball, and you are interested in video games, you may enjoy hearing me talk about video games too. So listen to me on Button Mash on the Ringerverse feed. Search for Ringerverse with a hyphen between Ringer and Verse in your podcast app of choice. You can also hear me talk about TV and movies on there, too. You can also sometimes hear me talk about TV and movies on the House of R feed. I'll link to both of these on our show page. And you can support this podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay almost ad-free, and get themselves access to some perks. Lucy Bloom, Emily Sauter, Big Dog, John Kelly, and Nick Jordan. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Patreon Discord group for patrons only, which is where you access those playoff live streams, one down, one to go. You can still get in on the second one, which will likely be during the World Series. You also get access to monthly bonus episodes, discounts on merch and ad-free fangraphs memberships, and so much more. Patreon.com slash EffectivelyWild. If you are a Patreon supporter, you can message us through the Patreon site, but anyone and everyone can contact us via email at podcast at fancrafts.com. Send us your questions and comments. Send us your intro and outro themes during our listener-created song rotation. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Shane McKeon for his editing and production assistance. We'll be back with another episode a little later this week. Talk to you then. The wacky hypotheticals are perfectively styled And the stat blast queries are detectively compiled A non-Agerian baseball legend selectively dialed But their spiciest takes are still respectfully mild More than two thousand episodes retrospectively filed and at each new one we still collectively smile that's effectively wild that's effectively wild